I want to welcome you into the Sunday preaching podcast of the Point Church located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. Speaking of the Bible, would you grab yours, okay? And today we're going to go to 2 Timothy. I finished up 1 Timothy last week, and I knew the Lord didn't want me to just stop. He wanted me to keep going uh, into 2 Timothy because this book is so, so uh, rich for us today. And as I begin to uh, think about this, this book, as I read it a few times and begin to think about all the things that we're going to look at in this section, I begin to think about my own life, my own walk, my own worldview. And uh, I, I thought, Lord, what, what would I title this series? And to be honest with you, you know, uh, you, you don't have to have a title to preach through a book of the Bible. You can just say Second Timothy, right, and do it. But as I began to really pray, and I was in my office, and this, this thought just kept coming to me, uh, the thought that it's getting real. It's getting real. And when you think about the context of Paul writing this letter, and you think about his life and where he's at and what's going on, and to the young pastor, Timothy, that has a really cool first name, I remind you, um, as he's writing to him, and Timothy's got his own world that he's living in, he's dealing with his own issues, even, even Paul talks about in the chapter here, you know, he remembers seeing Timothy's tears, the struggles that, that he's gone through, and, and the battles that he's in, the condition of the world and the setting in which Paul writes this, it just led me to say that this is a moment where it's getting real. Paul knows that he's about to die. And he knows that this is not the moment for casual Christianity. This is not the moment for a casual commitment to Christ. This is not a moment of, you know, live your life the way you want to live it and hope you're going to make it into uh, eternal life. No, this is a moment of salvation, and it's a moment of commitment to Jesus that no matter what comes our way, no matter what I experience or what I go through, I must keep my eyes on Christ. I don't know about you, but as I look around society and the world today, it certainly feels like that things are kind of closing in on the Christian faith. It's not popular today to be a Christian. I was thinking this week, I remember going on a mission trip to Brazil a few years ago, and, and I remember going to a particular school that had 2,000 students, and the administrator was so glad that we were there. He welcomed us in and pretty much said, do whatever you want to do. He turned the whole school over to us. And I was able to stand there in a big courtyard with a bunch of students around me and, and just share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And basically, I can't do that in my own town, in my own country, because the Christian faith is being tested and questioned and rejected. And so we're living in a day today where we've got to wrestle with that. How are we going to live it out? I mean, it's getting real. This casual cultural Christianity is just kind of fading off to the side. And the question is, will we really live out our faith? Will we really step forward and be the kind of Christians that God wants us to be? I want to read for you 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And then today, you'll see this phrase in the text as I read it. Today, I want to just talk to you about fanning the flame, fanning the flame that is in you as a Christian. Hear the word of the Lord, 2 Timothy 1, verse number 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. Paul uses that phrase 20 times uh, in his writings. I've done this with a clear conscience. I'm doing the best I can in the moment. I'm trying to process what's in front of me, and the best I can tell, not in perfection, 
but I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to serve the Lord with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember, Timothy, your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure that it dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you, here it is, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and of self-control. And may God add his blessings to the reading of his word. This is the word of the Lord. May we pray. God, thank you. Thank you for these seven verses. Thank you for what you've done in my heart already as we have uh, read and studied and looked at this text. And I know there's a word in here, Lord, and I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. I know that I'm not, I'm not capable of handling this correctly unless it's spirit-infused and, and spirit-energized. I don't want to preach now in my flesh. There's nothing in me now that wants to perform or do a good job. I want to lift up the cross, and I, 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 want, to, I want people to see Jesus in this moment and to realize that this matter of our faith, it's a serious matter that we need to be living it out at a, at a very crucial moment, at a crucial hour, that for such a time as this, as the book of Esther says, that you have placed us in our families, in our neighborhoods, in this community, and in the world to live it out. And God, it, it is getting real. We know that for our brothers and sisters around the world. Many of them are under such immense persecution and pressure right now, and I want to pray for them. I, I pray that you would just give them courage, give them boldness, give them uh, the grace that they need for the hour. God, we know that we need it as well. Maybe not as some in, in, in quite as difficult a situation, but yet we need it now. We need your strength. We need your grace, so we ask you to pour it over us now. I pray for the sinner that's nearest hell, that they would be born again, repent of their sins, call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For the person that has been saved, but yet is just kind of being casual about their faith, remind us now the urgency of the hour. And for all of us as Christians, may we recommit today to living the Christian life and to look in this text for just a minute, this just introductory remarks, and to see how Paul is setting that example for us. And I pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said. It's July 18th, uh, the year's 8064, and there is a lust-filled egomaniac, a narcissistic young man that has been made the emperor of Rome. His name is Nero. If you know anything about history, you've read about Nero. Uh, Nero was all about himself. When you look at history, when you look at Rome, uh, when you look at statues, when you look at decisions, it was all about Nero. Nero, in his demented state, in his narcissistic state, uh, got to a point because of some political reasons that he actually set Rome on fire, July 18th, AD 64. The, the fire was so big and it raged out of hand, it burned three districts in the city of Rome, the primary uh, city uh, uh, area of the city of the commerce and the business. There were seven other districts in Rome uh, that were damaged because of this fire. History tells us that of course, it was hard on the business owners and some of the wealthy. They lost some ground, if you will. But primarily, this was very hard on the poor and the homeless of this day. All eyes kind of turned to Nero, and the word began to spread that Nero had actually set this fire. And as those rumors began to spread and everything began closing in on Nero, Nero got the idea that he would turn the tables around and he would make an edict or a decree that the fire of Rome was actually set by the Christians. 
was a total lie. It was totally made up. But yet, people began to buy into it. Even so much so that there were many Roman citizens who were not willing to step forward and to say, no, this is not right. This is an injustice. And Christians began to lose their lives. As a matter of fact, if you would read uh, any historical document, there are many out there. Uh, I have read uh, the book Tried by Fire by William Bennett, former education secretary, where he uh, kind of gives a chronology of persecution through the years. But if you would read all of the different things that Nero did to Christians during this time, uh, some of those things I would not even want to repeat from this pulpit. They are so disgusting and so outlandish. But as he turned his attention toward the Christians, many of them began to, to lose their lives. They were martyred uh, because of their faith and because of the accusations that were levied against them. Quite interestingly, there were some Christians who were brought into the courtroom or the trial area, if you would, and they actually admitted or confessed to setting the fire, knowing full well that they didn't, uh, in order to get a deal where they could just go to prison uh, instead of literally losing their lives. This raging inferno cost a lot of lives, and it cost a lot of Christians their, uh, their, their, their life and their family, and, and it was a moment where they were intensely put to the test. It was a moment where you had to question whether or not you would step forward and say, yes, Yes, I, I name the name of Christ. Yes, I am a Christ follower because it could ultimately cause you your life. I give you this story to set the setting of the book of 2 Timothy. We know that the Apostle Paul went into Ephesus. He was there for three Sabbath days, and after the third Sabbath day, the Jews revolted. They didn't like it because uh, he was preaching the gospel, and so they ran him out of town. Eventually, Paul was placed into prison for the first time. We know from reading the end of the book of Acts uh, that basically Paul was under a house arrest. Uh, he was able to have visitors. Uh, he would receive company. Uh, Christians would come by and see him and get theology and, and have conversations. He was pretty much free to move around uh, the city, but he had to stay uh, close to home. And he was eventually set free. Uh, to go back to his ministry and his church planning and all the things that he did. But ultimately, he was imprisoned the second time, and this time it was totally different. Because this time, he would never get out. It would be this time under the Emperor Nero that the Apostle Paul would be beheaded because of his life, his testimony, and his ministry of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, remember when he left Ephesus, who did he leave in charge? He left a young man named Timothy, right? And so he had written him uh, the first time, the book of 1 Timothy, when he was under that house arrest. But now we know Paul is writing this letter when he is literally in chains in a Roman prison. As a matter of fact, if you were to get on an airplane today and fly to the city of Rome, uh, they would take you or they could take you to the place that it's believed this is the dungeon, this is the place that the Apostle Paul was in prison. It is from there that Paul writes this letter to Timothy. Now, I want you to get the context. I think this is so important. When you think about what Nero was doing, when you think about the Christians that were losing their lives the Apostle Paul, knowing full well that his death was imminent and that he would very likely never get out of those chains, he takes the time to write his young ministry buddy, Timothy, a letter. He loved Timothy, he cared about Timothy, and he wanted to make sure that the church and Pastor Timothy knew the importance of living out your faith regardless of what's going on around you. Let's jump in the text. I want to just kind of walk with it for a minute with you. And I want you to look on the screen. Clement of Rome said this about the Apostle Paul. He wrote this in AD 90 about Paul's death. After he had been seven times in bonds, had been driven into exile, had been stoned, had preached in the east and the west, he won the noble renown which was the reward of his faith. He departed from this world. He went unto the holy place, having been found 
a notable pattern of patient endurance. Now hear me today, church. If you and I are going to finish this race well, we're going to have to look at the example of people like the Apostle Paul of how to patiently endure in the day and the times in which we live. Paul writes to Timothy in these last moments. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is not self-made or self-appointed. He has a calling on his life. He speaks with authority in the will of God for the promise of life that is in Jesus. His endearment and his love to Timothy, he is praying over him grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a typical a salutation or opening statement, if you will, from Paul of greeting. He always wanted to remind the Christian brothers and sisters of the importance of grace, mercy, and peace. How much every day we need the unmerited favor of God. How thankful we are for his mercy that we do not receive what we deserve. And in this world, the only way you can ever live a life of peace is with the peace that comes from Jesus Christ our Lord, which is a peace that passes all understanding. The world doesn't understand it, do they? The world doesn't understand how in the chaos a Christian can have joy and peace. It is not in and of ourselves. It is only through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? This opening salutation leads Paul to really make four important statements I want to show you here about fanning the flame and about living out our faith in these difficult times. He begins in verse number three by saying, thankfulness is always in order. Thankfulness is always in order. Listen to him with these shackles on his arm as he says, I thank my God whom I serve. How many of you know yourself well enough that if you would have been in his situation, you would have probably been saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? God, look at all these churches I've planted. Look at all the people I've led to Christ. Look at, look at all the, the ministries I've started. Look at young Timothy. Look at all of the, the ones that I've mentored. God, where are you? God, I feel like you've let me down. No, here's the Apostle Paul in his jail cell, and he has a spirit of gratitude. He's showing that thankfulness is always in order. Notice that word serve there. I thank my God whom I serve. Can you hear the tone of his voice? He's really saying God has not let me down. God has not let me down. Anybody in recent days, you'd be honest enough in God's house and you'd let everybody know you're not a super Christian, that you've had some moments where you wondered where God was? Yeah. That word serve there is an interesting word to me. It really jumped off the page because... In the Bible, there's, there's two words that are translated for worship. One is in John chapter 4, you know, where Jesus said we worship in spirit and in truth. And that, of course, is the word proskuneo. It's the word where you bow down and kiss the ring of the king. You're showing honor and homage to royalty, if you will. And we certainly worship Jesus Christ in that manner. But over in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1, there is a word in our English Bible, worship there where Paul said that we serve God and it is our reasonable worship. And that word there is the word letreo, which means that we serve God. We work for him. We're in the kingdom actively worshiping him by serving him. Here in verse number three, the word serve there is that word. In other words, part of my mission Part of the calling on my life in serving God is that I am where I am right now for a purpose, and I thank God for that. Are there anybody can testify in the house today that's easy preaching and hard living? Yeah. Easy, that's easy preaching and hard living. I thank God for my pain. I thank God for my struggles. I thank God that 
Man, it's hard right now. God, I just want to thank you for it. You know what? The world thinks we've lost our ever-loving minds when we say something like that. But here's Paul, a man of God. Uh, Not because of sin, not because he committed a crime, not because he did anything wrong, but he's thanking God that part of his service is that he is locked in a jail cell. As a matter of fact, look down in your Bible, chapter 2, verse 8. I'm going to jump ahead just a second. He said to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Paul doesn't say I'm a criminal. Paul said, hey, I signed up for this. I I was changed on the road to Damascus, and, and I jumped in with both feet, and I'm all in. And I believe that Christ died for our sins, and he's the only way to heaven. And I've given my life to him, and I'm surrendered to him, and I'm committed to suffering as Christ suffered. And for me right now, that means that I'm being treated as a criminal, and I'm being locked up in prison. How many of you know today, I need you to get this, I need you to, How many of you know today that there are Christians around the world that are living this verse out? They haven't stole anything. They haven't killed anybody. They've not disrespected anyone. But they are being maligned and mistreated just because they profess Jesus Christ is Lord of my life. I learned from Paul here that thankfulness is always in order. What else is he thankful for? He's thankful for his heritage. Did you notice that? How many of you read Psalm 16 where the psalmist David said, I have a good heritage. I have a good heritage. A guy told me the other day, he was joking around. He said, man, when I look at my family tree, it goes straight back to Kilby Prison. That's a prison in Alabama, right? Some of you look back over your heritage and you go, you wonder about it and 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 I just want to say, for me, I'm thankful for my heritage. I'm thankful as I look back, my grandparents and my great-grandparents, and and I look back, and and, and Paul has a little bit of a different perspective here that I think is really interesting. When you think about his ancestry, remember, he was in Judaism. He was at the top of the class. He was trained and smarter than than all of his peers and protégés. I mean, he was all in it. He was so committed to Judaism that he was on his way to stamp out Christianity. He thought that Christianity was coming against his faith. He's on that road to Damascus that day to take some Christians and kill them or put them in prison. And what happened to him? His name at that time was what? It was Saul of Tarsus, right? And on that road, God struck him down. God struck him down. God saved Saul, I mean, radically. I I mean, you've got a great testimony, I'm sure, but you don't have a testimony like Paul, all right? I mean, God struck him down, put scales over his eyes, eventually removed his scales and showed him his need that the Messiah had come and and Saul gets saved, and now he's Paul, and now his mission, instead of killing Christians and throwing them in jail, now his mission is to be a missionary and plant churches and spread the faith. And now he is where he is. He's down the road a little bit. And he still looks back over his upbringing, and he says, I thank God for my ancestors And just like them, I'm doing what I'm doing with a clear conscience. Now, just hear me just a minute. Let me just get down here to some Tim stuff here, Tim theology here. I was sitting in my office this week, and I read that, and I just kind of looked up at the bookshelf like this, and, you know, I said, what I'm hearing Paul say right there is that I'm doing the best I can to serve God. I'm doing the best I can. That I want to serve the Lord and, and I want to do it with a clear conscience. Now look at me. I don't have everything figured out. You don't have everything all figured out. If you think that, you need to come to the altar today, okay? You don't. How many of you just say today, look, I, I'm just doing the best I can to live for the Lord, right? I saw that hand go up just like that. I'm just doing the, I'm doing the best I can. Paul is saying, do I look back on my ancestors and in the moment they were following Judaism and they were staying faithful to that. And, and many of them have, have missed it. 
They've not accepted Jesus. They've not embraced him as the Messiah. But I'm yet still thankful for my ancestors because it is through their faith that now I'm able to have faith in Jesus Christ. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 4 on the screen. Look up here. What did he say? He said, they are Israelites, speaking of his family. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Verse number five, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, say it with me out loud, is, say it again, keep going with me, who is God over all, blessed forever? Amen. Paul is saying, as I look back over my heritage, it is through that heritage that now I can say, to him be all the glory, praise, and honor to Jesus Christ, my Lord. He's thankful for his heritage. I'm thankful for my heritage today, that my family, my mom and dad are Christians, Grandparents, Christians, and right down the line, I'll say more about this in a minute. That doesn't make me a Christian, but I want to thank God today that I grew up in a Christian family, and some of you don't have that testimony, and I, I feel sorry for you about that. I really do, but I think we ought to just stop today and say, thank God in spite of that, where we are where we are today by His grace. Amen? So, so I'm reading Paul's letter here, and the first thing I'm seeing is that thankfulness is always in order. Number two, and I'm moving quick, the second thing I see from Paul is that there is no time for a prayer break. There's no time for a prayer break. Notice what he says. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. He's the same guy that wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 a command to those Christians to do what? To pray without, thank you, pray without ceasing. That means never stop. Now, now watch. Paul was not saying that 24-7 he's in a prayer closet. I mean, you can't do that. It's not even possible. You can't work. Matter of fact, I can't even preach to you right now if I'm praying, right? He's not saying 24-7 you're on the clock. What he's saying is that we constantly stay in the spirit of prayer. Paul is saying, even here in the jail cell, Timothy, you're on my mind. I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for your ministry. I'm praying for the church in Ephesus. How many of you believe that God's house and God's people is to be a house of prayer? <laughs> house of prayer. You know, Next Sunday will be our first priority. We always take uh, the first Sunday of the month and put a, an added period of time in the service where we pray. And I was even thinking about that this week, and I'm going, wow, you know, we're supposed to be praying all the time, right? We're supposed to be in the spirit of prayer. Sometimes we get into the spirit of irritation. <laughs> we get in the spirit of aggravation. We get in the spirit of criticism. Every head bowed and every eye closed. God says, stay in the spirit of prayer. Always be praying about things. Prayer is so important. I heard several years ago, I heard many people talk about the book Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire by Jim Cimbala. And you know, I hear people talk about it, hear people talk about it. I never read it. Never read it. I can't tell you why. Because everybody's read Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire, right, Bob Green? I see Bob Green back here. Everybody's read Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire. And so Misty and I are down in Belize, and I walked in a coffee shop, and they're laying on the table. It said, free book, fresh wind, fresh fire. <laughs> so I stole the book, and um, I took the book, I went, and I began to read it. Some of you know the story of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Jim Cimbala became the pastor there, and uh, he just tells the story of those early days and how dark and gloomy it was how he didn't even want to go to church. Anybody ever been a part of a church like that where he didn't want to go to church? It's really bad when the pastor's that way. But that, that's, that's what he said. It was dark. It was gloomy. It was frustrating. There wasn't a lot of people. He was overwhelmed. There were a lot of problems. Uh, you read the book, you'll know the details of those problems. 
So he just had to get away. He, had, he was overwhelmed. He said, I got to get away, and, and I got to figure out what God wants us to do for this church. And so he leaves, and, he, and he's gone for a little period of time, and then he comes back, and he said, you know, all the people in the church, they were ready for the young pastor and for his vision and his plan for the church of, you know, how we're going to build this great church for God. What are we going to do? Tell us what your vision is. And Jim Cimbala said, you know, I don't think they really wanted to hear what I, they thought they wanted to hear, but they really didn't want to hear what I had to say. He got up in front of them and he said, you know, Sunday's important. The Sunday gathering is important. We're never going to stop that. We're going to keep doing that. He said, but God's told me, that every Tuesday night at 7 p.m., we're going to have prayer service, and we're going to start praying. And if you know anything about the Brooklyn Tabernacle Church, they don't miss a Tuesday night of prayer. As a matter of fact, if you were to make the trip this Tuesday, and you were to go to New York, and you were to show up at the Brooklyn Tabernacle about 5 o'clock, you would see people going in the doors and going there in that church and getting down on their hands and knees and praying. And then at seven o'clock, the pastor and the staff come out and, and listen, they're not there to, uh, to, to just sing and, and so forth. They're there to pray. And that church made prayer a priority. And, the, and really the rest is really kind of history. If you know anything about the Brooklyn Tabernacle, God has used it in a supernatural way. And Jim Cimbala says, you know what? There was a fresh wind and a fresh fire that came through that church, not by a new program or not by something else that somebody came up with, a strategy, but it came because of prayer. Here's Paul in the darkest hour of his life, and he's saying, you know what? I'm using this time to constantly pray. Now, hear me for just a minute. I want to say a word to maybe some of our folks that are in that retirement age, and you get to that age where, praise God, you don't have to go to work anymore, and it, it seems like you've got a little bit more time on your hand to do stuff, and, and, and you get to kind of get to a point where you go, you know, this is me time, right? I'm retired. Well, I want to remind you that you've got a little bit more time on your hands where you could really make prayer a priority. Isn't that what's happening for Paul here while he's in prison? <laughs> He's got plenty of time on his hands. And so he's praying and he's seeking the Lord and he's interceding on behalf of Timothy. He's lifting him up before the throne of grace. Let me show you the third thing I see in the text as I go into verse number four. I think Paul is saying here that we need each other. We need each other. He says, Timothy, I remember your tears. I remember your tears. When you read Acts chapter 20 and verse 37, when Paul had to leave Ephesus, it says that the leaders of the church there, they were in tears, they were weeping, they were sorrowful. And no doubt Paul had in his mind that memory of seeing Timothy, who was heartbroken because Paul had to leave. It reminds me of our Lord and Savior as he's about to ascend into heaven and he's going to leave the disciples and and they're all upset, right? They had been with Jesus, and they were doing ministry with him, and they had this very close physical bond. That's why Jesus had to say to them in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. Why did he say that? Because they were troubled. Timothy was troubled because Paul would leave him, and Paul remembers his tears. But watch this. Most scholars say that very likely Paul is speaking of that moment when he saw Timothy crying when he left him, but that there's a bigger message there. Paul knows that there have been multiple times since then that Timothy has shed some tears. He shed some tears. You know why? First of all, Paul knew that life was hard. He knew that life was hard for a pastor. He knew that life was hard in ministry. No doubt he had received word that Timothy was struggling with some of the battles that he had. And Paul just speaks a word of encouragement into Timothy's life to say, Timothy, I know what you're going through and I want you to know I love you. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what the body of Christ is supposed to be? Come on now, isn't it? How many have been going through a hard time and somebody's put their arm around you? I've been going through a hard time and somebody's called you on the phone or invited you out to lunch or just said, hey, I care about you. I'm with you. I'm walking. 
I'm walking through this with you. That's what the body of Christ is supposed to be like. Paul is saying, Timothy, I, I remember your tears. I, I, know, I know what you're going through, but I'm in this with you in my heart right now. I want to see you. I want to see you that I may be filled with joy. Man, you ought to read some writing about that statement. Scholars speculate, what was Paul really saying there? Very likely, Paul was not anticipating getting out of jail and going and being with Timothy. But rather, he was anticipating the day that he knew that he and Timothy would be together again in heaven. I long to be with you, Timothy. And it's going to be a great day when we, when we gather together again. And then he goes on to verse number five. I love this. He said, Timothy, I'm sitting here. I'm thinking about, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Your faith, a personal faith. Timothy's, that word there means a developed faith. Timothy had personally committed his life to Christ and now was serving Christ by being a pastor in Ephesus. How did Timothy receive that faith? Well, look at it. He said, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And now, Timothy, that faith is in you. I remind you today when we stand before the Lord that we will not be welcomed into heaven because of the faith of our grandmother. <laughs> we'll not be welcomed into heaven because of the, the familial faith that we have. Oh, my family's always been, a, I was born into a Christian family. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But watch, there has to be a moment when your faith becomes personal. When you practice your faith. A couple years ago, we read, several of you read the book. I passed it out by a pastor in, a, in our state over in Tallahassee. He wrote a book called The Unsaved Christian. It was an interesting read. He just talked about his own life, how he grew up. He grew up in a Catholic church, and then he went to a Methodist church in his teenage years, and then eventually he... he uh, became a Christian in his late teenage years, and he just talks about how he processed all that, all right, growing up in church. And as he's writing, he's talking about how in the southern part of the United States, how there are a lot of people that are cultural Christians. It's just kind of something. It's a part of your life. It's like one-seventh of your life, okay? One-seventh. You. This is kind of what we do on Sunday. You know, we go go to church, and we have lunch, and Kind of have family, and then we go back to living our life. And, he, and he's just saying in the book that, that we need to be sure that we're not cultural Christians. We need to make sure that we have truly made it a personal thing. Faith in our hearts have trusted in Christ. Uh, Ed Litton is uh, currently the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and he was speaking a few years ago here in Pensacola, and he said something I've never forgot. He said, um, you know, when you think about preaching the gospel he said, I believe one of the hardest grounds to plow up to preach the gospel is in the South in the Bible Belt because everybody kind of thinks they're a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian. My family's a Christian. And it's important for all of us in this room right now, every single one of us, to not be a cultural Christian, but to be a converted Christian, right? Page, page 30 in that book, the writer of The Unsaved Christian said this. He said, when we think of unreached people groups, we envision intrepid missionaries taking the gospel to a place where the name of Jesus has never been spoken. But many American pastors are faced with a similarly daunting task to bring Jesus to a place where he is admired but not worshipped, where God is a grandpa in the sky, where many of their congregants are good people who don't even know they need to be saved. May that never be true here. May that never be true here. My goal right now is not to make you doubt your salvation. My goal is just simply to ask you the question, do you know, do you know that Christ lives in you? Do you know Christ lives in you? Do you know that you've been born again? Paul said, Paul said, Timothy, I've seen it in your life. You're not passive. You're not cultural. But you have been radically changed by God's grace. And now your faith is sincere. Timothy, we're all in this together. It takes all of us to fulfill the mission of the kingdom of God. Let me make one more point before I move on. Mama, Daddy, 
grandpa, grandma, never forget the influence that you have over kids. Never forget those little eyes and those little ears that are listening. We have no idea. We have no idea how God may use our children and our grandchildren one day when we're dead and gone, when we're long gone. The kingdom may be moving forward in part because God used us to be an influence on them. May that be true. And then let me get to this last point, which is actually the section here in verse number 6 that I titled the message. I think what Paul is saying in 6 and 7, this is what I'm going to summarize it as. I think he's saying this, Timothy, don't let external circumstances control you. Don't let external circumstances control you. He said in verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I love that. I love that thought of fanning the flame. Timothy, there's a flame burning inside of you. We used to learn it like this when I was in Sunday school in a good old Baptist church. We used to sing this little light of mine. Come on, let's go. Y'all with me? This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. I didn't say to sing it. I just said, okay. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. I'm not going to hide it under a bushel. I'm not going to let Satan blow it out. That's theologically really bad. You do know that, right? Satan can't blow it out. But, but we have this analogy of this flame that's burning inside of us. And, and you can feel, you can feel Paul as he's writing to Timothy. And he's really saying to this young pastor who's probably tired and weary and he feels beat up and he's worried about Paul and he's seeing persecution. He's seeing Christians losing their lives and he's feeling it. Anybody just feeling it today? He's feeling it. And he said, Timothy, there's a flame inside of you. There's a flame inside of you. And you need to fan that flame. Some of you know, some of you guys and girls in the military know, somebody in here is going to Sears school. I forget who it is. That was Jake. That's right. We were talking the other day. I told him, I said, would you please go live on Facebook so we can watch it? You're out there in the middle of nowhere, right? And you got to figure it out. You got to build your own fire. You got to whatever. And you know, in order for that flame to get going, you got to have some oxygen. You got to have some air. We see back in the old days, that old accordion type fan, right? That they would put down on the fire and they would pump that thing to, to get the air going because a fire needs oxygen in order to grow and to spread. There's no accident what Paul says here in these verses, fan into flame the calling, the gift of God on your life, Timothy. Don't let it die down. Let it burn. Let it burn bright. Let it spread. But what happens? The flame is burning inside of us. The call of God for salvation, the call of God for ministry in the kingdom. But what happens to us, verse number 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear. We get overwhelmed, don't we? Anybody overwhelmed today? You overwhelmed? Last night at 8 o'clock, my cell phone rang, and it was Sheila Pittman. And uh, Sheila was on the other end of the line. Kenny and Sheila been attending here for a while. Some of you remember uh, about six weeks ago, me mentioning the family whose 33-year-old son drowned up in Indianapolis. That's Kenny and Sheila. Kenny and Sheila, they moved here in our community. Kenny's been uh, an associate pastor in some churches up north, and they moved down here. They have a truck now. They drive for their business. They're gone quite a bit. And last Sunday, uh, Kenny left, left here, and he was going down to South Florida making a few runs. To make a long story short, uh, Kenny's got COVID, and, and um, he's in uh, Punta Gorda, Florida now, and uh, he's in the ICU. He's on the ventilator and uh, is not doing well. And so I've been communicating with Sheila all week this week, you know, and back and forth. And, and last night my cell phone rang at about 8 o'clock, and, and um, she said, Pastor, I hate to call you, you know, this time of the night, whatever. And, of course, I told her to call me anytime, but uh, she was in the car heading down there last night. And the doctor had called and said, come, 
come on, let you in to see him. And um, so she was going to drive all night to get down there and be with him. And, and you know, and I, and I was just processing that in my mind, and I'm going, what an what a anxious moment. Come on, let's just have some real talk today, y'all. She just buried her son. She's buried her son. Now today she's down there with her husband. It's overwhelming, isn't it? This is our, our, our sister. And as, I, and as I listened to her on the phone last night, you know what she was doing? She was talking about how good the Lord is and how she knew the Lord was at work and how the Lord was going to carry her through this. She's been texting me Bible verses. I'm supposed to be the helper, right? I'm, she's helping me. Hey, come on now. Let's be honest. Some of you in this room have had some fear this week. You've, got, you, you've had a doctor look at you and say some things to you you didn't want to hear. This week I've had, I've had two different people in my life that, that have passed away. And you get overwhelmed. And you get fearful. But I want to turn that around for just a minute. I want to turn that around for just a minute. And I, and I want to say this. We're going to have those moments. We're going to have those moments, but the truth is, I believe there are way too many Christians right now that are absolutely paralyzed by fear. Just paralyzed. Paralyzed. Can't function. Can't function. Because we're so fearful. We're fearful. I found myself in the last 18 months pastoring fear. <laughs> Talking with people that are just paralyzed. Because you have your eyes, you get our eyes on our circumstances. And those circumstances end up controlling us. Would somebody say amen or raise both hands or do something? Just paralyzed. Can't function. I didn't say it, God's Word says it. God is not the author of fear. He's not the author of fear. He's not given us the spirit of fear. But watch this, what fans the flame? What fans the flame in our life? He has given us, let me back up, let me say this about the word fear there. In its context, typically fear in the New Testament is Phobia, the word we get all of our fears from, right? But the word here in this verse is not phobia. It's the word that means being a coward. The word is cowardice. God has not given us a spirit to be a coward about what we believe. No matter what's going on around us, we need to stand up in these days for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I say this over and over, and let me say it again. I'm talking about our position in Christ. We need to have the right disposition, but we will not apologize for our position. That Christ is the way. He's the only way to the Father, the only way to eternal life. God's not given us a spirit of cowardice, but what has He given us? He's given us a spirit of power. That word is dunamis. Dunamite, dynamite. And when we think about that, it's in the New Testament very closely tied to what? The working of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit power in our life. What is the word for spirit in the Scripture? It's the word pneuma from which we get pneumonia. It's the very breath in our lungs, the air. What fans the flame in our life? The work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. What does it mean, Pastor, to be filled with the Holy Spirit? That you just start acting weird and do weird things and levitate and stuff like that? No. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means that you empty yourself of self and you say, Lord, I'm broken, I'm hurting, I'm confused, I don't understand all of this, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to, what did Paul say? I'm going to do the best I can in the moment. I'm going to live with a clear conscience. He's not giving us a spirit of, fear, but a power of love, of love. How many of you believe this place is supposed to be the most beloved place in town? Come on. 
a spirit of love. Man, too many church people today are angry and want to fight. I just want to go on. I want to let you know, please hear me. I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight. I'm all about love. <laughs> Peace and love. God's given us a spirit of love. Our mission for our church is not yelling at people to the point of life, Jesus Christ. It's loving people to the point of Jesus Christ. Paul says he's also given us a spirit of being self-disciplined, of self-control, to know that we belong to the Lord. We are His. He belongs to us and we belong to Him. And what, what Paul says, this really only command in this whole text is for Timothy, you're personally responsible to fan the flame that's in you. Timothy, you take responsibility for yourself in these days. Don't be paralyzed by fear, but fan the flame that's inside of you. Wouldn't it be great if all of us took that and embraced that together individually? Oh, what a difference the church of Jesus Christ would make today if the fan got flamed in all of us. I was reading this week, I was thinking about fires in our nation and Probably most of you, if you think about a fire, you would think about uh, the Great Chicago Fire, right, uh, years ago. Uh, Dio Moody said that was the greatest mistake of his ministry. In that night, he was actually up preaching, and the service was closing out, and he didn't invite uh, people to come to Christ, to accept Christ. And he said before everybody got out of the building, he could hear the fire trucks and the sirens as, as that great fire swept across Chicago. There are some people that say, this is conspiracy theory, there's some people that say that maybe a meteorite caused a, a, a fire in Chicago, and on the very same day, the same night, the largest fire in the history of the United States happened in Wisconsin, not too far away, in Pistigo, Wisconsin. Huge fire spread. Some people say uh, it was a meteorite that caused both of them, but you and I know, you and I know that in Chicago, one dark night when we were all in bed, old Miss Lily took a lantern to the shed, Right? Didn't we learn that song as a kid? That that's actually what started the great Chicago fire. Nonetheless, watch this. A very, in Wisconsin, a very small controlled fire, controlled burn, very small. The wind began to blow, and that thing began to spread. And before it was over with, between 2,000 to 2,500 people lost their life. It was tragic. It was terrible. 18... 1871, I believe it was. So I read that story, and I thought about fanning the flame, and I thought about the early Christians and the early disciples, how they turned the world upside down, and I thought about Paul telling Timothy to fan the flame. And did you know today, gang, let's stand. I'm done, okay? Come on, stand up. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. Listen to me. You and I today, right now, we are way over here in Pensacola, Florida. We're way over here on this side of that flame. The flame that started over there and the gospel made it to us. And now we're here today because those early Christians turned the world upside down and the gospel has spread to the ends of the earth and you and I are the recipients of that today. And I just pray that that would be the case in my own life. Amen? As I fan the flame that God has placed in my heart. Would you bow your head with me?